0: Screen Time
1: with John Fardy.
0: This is News Talk. Hello and
2: welcome to Screen Time. I'm John Fardy, and this is News Talks TV and Movie Show. This week on this show, we remember all that Burt Bacharach gave to the cinema. I chatted the director of a controversial new documentary all about the pro-nuclear movement, called Atomic Hope. As the Dublin International Film Festival launches, we speak to its festival director, Gronje Humphreys. Plus... The one and only Pat Short chats about his favourite film, as well as his acting life and times. I'm open on Twitter, John Farty, or you can email me, screentime at newstalk.com. This show is available as a podcast every Friday at 5pm on newstalk.com, or the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud, and it's on the radio every Saturday at 6pm on Newstalk Radio. A good weekend to you all, and I say all with a little bounce in my step because this week we got our latest round of radio listenership figures and Screen Time added an extra 3,000 listeners. So uh, hello to you all, whoever the three thousand of you are, and you're welcome in the last three months. And all the rest of you who listen every week and get in touch, I am very grateful. Now, I have a very busy show this week, lots going on, but I do want to quickly tell you about a TV show.
1: Well, when we first met at a party, Uh, I was coming down with the flu. I could feel it in my bones. And I knew I should go home, but he
0: was so interesting. So we spent the entire night walking around the city until dawn on the coldest night of the year. The next day, my mom
1: admits me into the hospital. So for three days of of fever and hallucination, all I'm thinking is, oh no, he's gonna think that I don't care. Right. Also, he's like a decade older than me. So he's punching above his weight, but When I came to, he was there, at my bedside. Wait, how do you know how to find him? I got his
2: number from the hostess of the party. I just had a sense that we'd gotten along so well, there must be some
1: reason for him not calling me. He was right. Now, that
2: is a clip from Modern Love. I was talking about it with Pat Kenny earlier in the week as one to possibly revisit or or watch if you've never seen before. It's from John Carney, our own John Carney, who gave us delightful movies like Once and Sing Street. And it's, I mean, the first series was, I think it's five years old at this stage, maybe longer. And there's a second series, both on Amazon. And it is all about modern romantic dilemmas the arc of love stories let's say modern love is a well-known not that i've ever read it column uh in the new york times where people write in with stories of tales of modern romance i guess doomed love happy love complicated love and they've made podcasts about it and everything but john carney made this tv show and what i love about this and it by no means has been universally adored, far from it it would seem, but there's eight episodes in each series of the two series and they tell a love story, a beginning, middle and end of all different kinds. The first one begins with this young woman who's dating various people and the building she lives in in New York is minded by this doorman who casts a cold eye on all her boyfriends and tells her which ones are good, which ones are bad. The clip you heard there was Andrew Scott, him and his partner are adopting a baby. And that episode is great. That's how they met. There is an amazing one with Anne Hathaway uh, who starts dating someone and then her bipolarity comes into play. They're just beautifully told stories of love and love working out and sometimes love not working out. There's a great one in season two where this couple get together and the lady in the relationship only sleeps during the day. And so they have to have this nocturnal kind of relationship. And it's making some metaphor about, you know, the weirdness that we let people into in our lives and all. I watched the whole two seasons over the last three weeks and really looked forward to them. And there's something very nice about, watching a show and we talk about shows on this show all the time that are you know big commitments and take a long time to get through and all and they're worth it a lot of the time but there was something nice about being able to just watch a 30-minute episode of a self-contained story and then move on to the next one so I found these kind of very nourishing little bits of TV you know they're kind of like a they're not the main course they're the Appetizer, maybe, or something. I'm not great with food analogies. I love food, just not food analogies. But anyway, Modern Love on Amazon, a delightful watch, I think. Do let me know if you might have been watching it at any stage. Screentime at newstalk.com is the email address, or you can tweet me, John underscore Fardy. Now, the big Movie event of the week, certainly from an Irish, but indeed international expectum, is the launch of the Dublin International Film Festival, which runs from February the 23rd to March the 4th, and it's become a seriously major event in the Irish and indeed international cinema calendar, and I'm delighted to be joined by its festival director, Gronya Humphreys. Gronya hi. Hi, how are you doing? So, Gwanya, listen, just blue sky, top level thinking, those horrible phrases, before we get into what's actually happening, there are a lot of festivals and people can argue about, you know, how much efficacy they have. But the Dublin Film Festival, the Dublin International Film Festival, it seems to me has grown huge and is a big, big deal now. I think that's fair to say, isn't it?
3: Well, thank you for that. I mean, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, at last count, I think there was something like 8,000 film festivals of some shape and size in in, in the world at, at the very moment that we are. You know, I mean, you know, obviously there's been so many changes over the last couple of years. Some have fallen away and some have grown. I think we've become very aware of the need to curate and to, you know, to find some kind of order and structure on the sheer number and, and and. I suppose, kind of density and range of of content being produced for both the small and the big screen. But the festival is 21, John, this year, which is bizarre to think about. And, you know, Irish cinema has really grown alongside that. I mean, it's wonderful to be here, you know, celebrating, you know, this year's programme, but at the same time being very kind of anxious about a film that opened our festival last year, which was on Colleen (laughs) Um, Keane. And a lot of this year's programme is made up of people you know, whose work we're celebrating this year is, is you know, in a line uh, uh, with shorts or documentaries that we would have shown in previous years. So I feel like our growth, if you like, is really in parallel with what's happened yeah. with Irish cinema, you know, and very lucky to have that. You know, the Renaissance and the growth and diversity and the Oscar noms show you mm. how much work has been done in in the last two decades in which the festival has been very lucky to benefit.
2: Yeah. And sorry, just we'll get to what's happening this year, but you say you're anxious. I presume you mean about and Queen at the Oscars, is it? Or
3: I, I am to the extent that I really hope it's the little film that can. You know, yeah. I think it yes. started uh, from a very small, simple place, a beautiful adaptation, a first time director. Uh, You know, Mm. compared to some of the other films uh, being celebrated at the Oscars, it's definitely, you know, got got a smaller budget, but a huge ambition and huge impact on audiences. So from my perspective, I mean, we'll be, you know, just keeping an eye on some of the other contenders and, and looking to see. I think we actually have one of them in our lineup. And, you know, and just charting, as I said, it would be so special. And I think, you know, the Oscars is all about, you know, who you think is going to win and who deserves to win. But in some ways, wouldn't it just be amazing to, to hear on Colleen Q be, 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 uh, be announced when that envelope opens?
2: Oh. It certainly would. It certainly would. And uh, we, we hope that that's the case. I, I share your enthusiasm for that outcome. Now, listen, there's so much happening in this festival. It's hard to know where to begin. And we don't have a huge amount of time because we're a commercial radio station. No, but let's let's pick some of the highlights. And I suppose dovetailing nicely with on Colleen Kume, which opened the festival last year, there's an Irish feature, God's Creatures. Tell us about that.
3: So God's Creatures is really, in a way, the brainchild of Fola Cronin O'Reilly, an Irish film producer who some might remember from a film she produced, Lady Macbeth, a couple of years uh, ago. Mm -hmm. So her new film is actually, it's set in a small uh, fishing uh, village on uh, the the coast of Ireland, quite rural, uh, very small, closely knit um, Irish a town where everybody knows everything about everybody else and then a prodigal son returns and he's been cast out we're not quite sure why and he's returned from Australia and really there's a suspicion around this dark stranger played beautifully by Paul Mescal, and the one person who doesn't seem to have any you know worries about as I said his arrival back into his hometown is his mum played by Emily Watson and so in that sense of you know uh, Irish uh, pol- small town politics uh, the returning hero or not. Um, and also, as I suppose, in a way that we've seen with Banshees, you know, the way in which the landscape of, of Ireland can you know, have, a, a, have its own role to play, I suppose, in the way mm. in which we tells our, tell our stories. So the sea has a very big part to play in, 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 a, in a beautifully made, beautifully realised film. We're, we're delighted that that's our opening night film, a very strong character study, but at the same time a kind yeah. of drama about family.
2: Yeah, and listen, Jane Seymour uh, is going to be celebrated w- with a public interview.
3: Well, we're delighted. I mean, Harry Wilde is is a, is a series that I really enjoyed, and was delighted to see that it had been renewed. And I feel like that's something a festival should do. You know, in some ways, we're we're kind of capitalising on the fact that she's working here on the second season, and somebody who has a long, long career uh, in 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 cinema. Uh, And the small screen from Dr. Quinn, from obviously Solitaire and Live and Let Die. One of my favourite films, Somewhere in Time, um, from uh, uh, the early 80s with Christopher Reeve. So it was really, as I said, uh, opportunistic. But again, the, the festival tries to mix discoveries, new talent, new names, and then maybe some more established uh, filmmakers and and actors kind of sharing their knowledge and insights with, with Irish audiences and Irish filmmakers. So it's really that breadth, you know, we have a new, we have a Nicolas Cage film in the lineup, John. So, you know, we we have a very broad canvas to work on.
2: Yes, that's her way of saying this isn't all art house stuff or anything like that. And it never Not has been. Which Nicolas Cage movie?
3: It's a film called Butcher's Crossing. It's a film about um, buffaloes and buffalo hunters. And it's very much him going back into a kind of very gritty, very kind of, uh, you know, a hard-bitten man of few words kind of Western. (laughs) Um, But again, it's Nicolas Cage, so it's very particular. But we also have a a Korean film, actually, that, you know, has has, uh, boy bands from um, the K-pop world. We also have uh, one of the stars of uh, Money Heist. So I'm very conscious that across the program, you know, the world has changed. We've got James Seymour, Nicolas Cage, but you also have, as I said, kind of wonderful films from, from, you know, new cultures that I think through the beauty of Netflix and beyond, we're now more and more familiar with.
2: Absolutely. And it's it's nice to hear you frame it that way. Listen, you do docs very well. A guest, I think he's been on every year since this show started, is Mark Cousins. He's bringing his new documentary, The March on Rome, which I gather from what he told us before is all about fascism.
3: It's all about fascism. It's slightly unusual in that I think he went to Cinecitta and he actually made it with a very, mostly Italian team. And it's looking at a piece of film. Uh, from the very uh, early uh, part of the last century, which is about, you know, the, the, the march on Rome, the rise of Mussolini, and then ch- tracing, you know, the effect of that, that film down through the decades and to, to the rise of the far right, you know, in, in, in many countries today. It's, it's very much, you know, a very beautiful film. It has got lovely textures to it, and, and, it's, and it's part of a series that we're doing on, on essays around cinema and film, we have a wonderful documentary about Midnight Cowboy, for instance, which I mm. absolutely recommend. And um, we also have Jim Sheridan's new film, which is a, a portrait of Peter O'Toole, um, and some other kind of Irish documentaries looking at maybe subjects like, you know, Mother and Baby's Home and Michael Harkin's mm-hmm. new film, Stolen, and Sinead O'Shea's film, Pray for Our Sinners, which is about a, a doctor who stood up to the Catholic Church in, in Navon. Um, so there's interesting subjects. Some of them, as I said, very much you know, in a kind of historical setting or in a film setting, and then others are dealing with much more sort of Irish subjects. Uh, Cara Holmes' new documentary deals with a a wonderful shepherdess from Wexford who's also a poet. So we've got Mm. kind of, as I said, a wide range of different subjects that hopefully will appeal to a very broad church of audience.
2: Well, it's a radio cliché, but uh, there's something for everyone, clearly, in the Dublin International Film Festival, this year now very importantly websites and tickets tell people how to find out more and how to book tickets
3: well the easiest way is actually to grab one of our catalogs and uh, it's the old fashioned way but you can grab it there all over the city lighthouse ifi and all all the different kind of usual spaces but you're right john the other way to do it is to actually get onto the website which is diff.ie. so dublin international film festival dot and it's all there. There, all the information about the, the the schedule. The festival is mostly based in the in the lighthouse city centre, but we'll have mm-hmm. some online screenings, some IFI screenings, and some special screenings around the city, and a tour of a fantastic German film around the country. So hopefully, as I said, the website has all that information. And then, as I said, tickets are on sale. We launched on Tuesday. Some things are selling out fast. So, you know, if you're interested in particular yeah. things a new agent... Gillen film called Barber, for instance, or the surprise film, uh, get in there quickly. Um, beautiful film called My Sailor, My Love, for instance, um, with uh, James Cosmos. So, again, if you've got a particular interests, try to get on there. Uh, sit down with a coffee and, and peruse at your leisure and then book as fast as you can.
2: Wonderful. Well, listen, the Dublin International Film Festival, which runs from February the 23rd to March the 4th, is a credit and indeed a testament to Irish and indeed international cinema. I've been speaking to Gronia Humphreys. Gronia, thanks a million. Thanks very much, John. Gráinne Humphreys there, the festival director of the Dublin International Film Festival. Up next, remembering Bert Bacharach. Now you're welcome back to Screen Time, News Talks, TV and Movie Show. Now, you've no doubt heard at this stage that the legendary songwriter and composer Burt Bacharach has passed away. It's it's almost impossible to overstate uh, just how important he was as a musician. And in a way, you know, was hugely important in terms of the evolution of pop songwriting. Now, why are we talking about this on a movie show? Well, never a problem to feature music, I don't think, but his songs have been used and he wrote music for the movies and even made some funny cameos in movies. So his songs were used to amazing effect in movies like Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, Alfie, which, you know, may have been his favorite song of all time with the great Michael Caine sung by Scylla Black. So a couple of years ago on this station, I did a whole series about brill-building songwriters, people who were tasked with writing music in this famous music factory basically in New York in the 50s and early 60s called the Brill Building and we did one on Burt Bacharach. So this was recorded a couple of years before he passed away but it will give you a great sense of who he was and what he did for movie music as well as everything else. There's a great debate about who's the greatest songwriter of the 20th century, but really, by sheer force and indeed weight of numbers, there's no contest. It's Burt Bacharach. Wrote seventy-three top forty hits in the U.S. Yet there are lots of, well, let's call them kids who've never heard of Burt Bacharach. But they sure know a song.
1: Said you like Burt Bacharach? I went never heard of him. And I was about, I don't know, I don't
2: know what. I was you know? I was in my twenties. I went never heard of him. They played me all these songs, and I knew every single word to everyone. It's, you know, they'd all been there subconsciously like for years. You know. Bacharach forms part of the spine of the Great American Songbook. Born in 1928, he had creative parents, with his mother a painter, and his father a newspaper columnist and author. He hated his piano lessons as a kid, but found them useful as a teenager when he was trying to be popular. He would prove particularly popular with the ladies. He went on to study musical composition at McGill University, where he remembers getting a sage piece of advice from a professor there, as he told NPO recently.
1: And
0: he took me aside, and maybe he sensed what I felt, or maybe his just observation was, never be ashamed of something that's melodic. One could whistle. And I said, wow. So that was a valuable lesson I learned from him. Never forgot that one. Never be afraid of something that you can whistle. There's a
1: one thing left to do. Before my story's through, I've got to take you for my one. so the story of my life can start.
2: After a stint in the army, he went where all aspiring songwriters went, New York's Brill Building, where teams of songwriters were cranking out the hits for the stars of the 50s and early 60s. He found his musical feat in 1956, when he teamed up with the lyricist Hal David. Their partnership would rewrite popular musical history. Magic Moments moments would be their first hit together. But that was just the beginning. Bacharach's music shifted a gear when he heard the soul and R&B hits of groups like the Drifters and started having his songs sung by more soulful acts like the Shirelles. I can't help myself When
3: baby it's you Baby it's you
2: Perhaps the artist that really sealed Bacharach and David's songwriting was Dionne Warwick. Warwick was a conservatory trained singer and the blend of Bacharach's music and her distinctive voice led to some of the most popular sounds ever committed to record.
3: Walking down the street and I start to cry. Each time we meet, walk on by.
2: songs although hugely popular were musically more complex than say she loves you yeah 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 they had unusual time signatures and strange chord progressions that lifted the songs above the ordinary ditty
3: I just don't know what to do with myself don't know just what to do with myself I'm so used to doing
2: Bacharach and David continue to have hit after hit. Bacharach, by his own admission, was fanatical about making the music and was infamous for wanting lots of takes for his various songs. He had written the song Alfie for the movie of the same name starring Michael Caine.
0: What's it all about, Alfie? Is it just for the
3: moment
2: we live? It was recorded by Cilla Black, who told a BBC documentary how torturous she found the whole process. And Bacharach himself knew how
0: difficult he was on her.
3: But it was ever so difficult, because the range in it was unbelievably hard.
0: I don't think she knew it hit her. We must have gone 28, 29 takes with her. Had it up early, but I kept going. Can we get better than that? Can I get one more? It'll be a little bit more. A little bit more, a little better. Just some magic.
3: I certainly wouldn't have done it for a Quasimodo because it was Bert and he was gorgeous and so talented, and I enjoyed his company anyway.
2: Like so many other leading lights of the Brill Building, Bacharach and indeed David found themselves slightly out of favour as the Beatles and Dylan and others who wrote their own songs came to the fore in the public's taste. They started to write more for films and won an Oscar for the best song for Raindrops Keep Fallin' On My Head. But like so many great songwriting partnerships, Bacharach and David started to fall apart. It seemed David was getting tired of Bacharach's growing celebrity. The end of the partnership had serious knock-on effects for their great collaborator, Dionne
3: Warwick. And because I was obliged to give Warners a certain amount of albums um, and produced by Bacharach David. There became a conflict, basically. It were two people that weren't speaking to each other. You couldn't expect them to write with each other. And I mean, it's just logic. And unfortunately, because of the problem, I would have been sued by Warners if I had not sued Bacharach David. And that's the story, folks.
2: <laughs> the late 70s became a more fallow period for Bacharach. Around this time, his second marriage to actress Angie Dickinson broke up. He had had a daughter named Nikki with her who'd been born with developmental problems and later diagnosed with Asperger's. But Bacharach's third wife was also his new lyricist, and with Carol Bayet Sager, he revived his songwriting credo. You probably know these songs from the 80s. <laughs> He also managed to heal things with Dionne Warwick and she appeared on this famous anthem of friendship. His resurgence continued in the 90s when he collaborated with Elvis Costello on a Grammy-winning album and was also brought to a new audience thanks to his various cameos in Austin Powers' movies.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Bert Bacharach. The
2: world now. He continues to work till this day, and has released albums of his own singing as well as lots of other collaborations. He remarried for the fourth time. There was tragedy when his daughter Nikki committed suicide. He had previously written a song about her, which would become hauntingly prescient.
0: Nicky, it's you.
3: Nicky, where can you be? It's you. No one but you for
1: me. I've been so lonely since you went away.
0: I won't spend a happy day. For
2: tragedies and broken marriages aside, the music perseveres. The music is now above trends or fashion. It's like mountains or the rock of Gibraltar. It's not going anywhere, anytime soon.
0: What the world needs now Is love, sweet love
2: the sound of the late, great Burt Bacharach. Now, since that was recorded, obviously he passed away and that's why we're replaying that. But he came to Ireland and did a legendary show in 2019, which was amazing by all accounts. Unfortunately, I wasn't that. He, he did an album during lockdown. I mean, this guy lived and breathed music up until the day he died. So I just wanted to pay a little tribute there to Burt Bacharach, and indeed, all he did for cinema music. He wrote some of the great songs for movies. So R.I.P. Burt Bacharach. Now opening next weekend is Atomic Hope, which follows a tiny global movement of very unpopular pro-nuclear activists who strongly believe that nuclear power is the answer to our climate crisis? It was filmed over a baffling and intriguing ten years, and there's a very interesting group of characters that are assembled. It was directed by Frankie Fenton, who previously gave us Not Dark Yet, the very powerful documentary all about Simon Fitzmaurice, a talented filmmaker who was living with motor neuron disease. And I'm delighted to say Frankie joins me now. Hi, Frankie. How are you? Hiya, John.
0: Frankie, why
2: did you want to do this? Why did you want to follow a group of pro-nuclear activists for this long?
0: Yeah, I know. It seems um, kind of like a baffling thing. It it wasn't by choice. Originally, I wanted to make a film very quickly and kind of get it out the door within a year or two. Um, However, I was really just starting off as a filmmaker. I really had no kind of idea just what I was taking on. Probably that was a very good thing. And, uh, but over time I just got more, felt more and more in love with the subject matter, um, which was to me one of the most important kind of conversations of our lifetime, which is, you know, what's happening with our energy crisis, what's happening with the climate crisis. And, uh, it's something that kind of affected the entirety of the planet, uh, not just the people living on it, but the entire biosphere. So. It was something that I kind of just never let go of and just wanted to keep on going and, and, and you know till I got to the end. And here we are about to have a cinema release next weekend. So
2: Indeed we are. And mm-hmm. what we should say for people is there's a couple of different scientists around the world and they are, in fairness, scientists that you're talking to. And they're, some of them are, you know, I don't want to do them a disservice and say quirky characters, but I guess as a filmmaker... It works for you because they are interesting people. I know one guy in particular was talking about how his dad was the first person to come out in this kind of very not liberal town in America. Like they were an interesting group of people, collectively and singly. Did, did you try and track yeah. down particular characters?
0: Yeah. Well, honestly, it was like starting off, it kind of it began really from a research point of view, trying to figure out, you know, what the subject matter was about. Why why are these people pro-nuclear? We all know the reasons why we're anti-nuclear, but why would you be pro-nuclear? And that kind of began with physicists and scientists. In general, it was kind of older, white, you know, pale male and stale, for want of a better term, Uh, men in front of, you know. uh, Uh, Lots of books, bookshelves and that kind of thing. And as time went on, I realized that it was hard for me to even understand or kind of penetrate what it was that they were saying. It wasn't until I actually started to see some of these younger kind of activists, scientists who were kind of more, I suppose, better at science communicating um, and kind of really taking all of this very complicated information and trying to be able to distill it in a way that the general public could understand. And those were the people that I needed to focus the camera on because it's kind of, it's 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 a rabbit hole of a conversation where you, when you're talking about nuclear power, you're talking about the waste and the safety and the, you know, the bomb proliferation issues mm-hmm. and, you know, all of those kind of fears that we have in our heads regarding nuclear bombs and, Uh, You know, even stuff that's kind of penetrated our culture like The Simpsons and that. It's such a wide, big subject matter. So actually being able to find people who were able to talk about it in a way that was easy to understand was very tricky, very difficult. That's Mm. probably the reason why I ended up going to so many countries around the world. Yeah.
2: Yeah, and you certainly travel for it, and and fair play to you in that regard. So listen, let's get to the meat and potatoes of it, because there was a couple of, and I guess this is what you want as a filmmaker, but there was one or two bits I suppose I was troubled by. Uh, So, like, top level, is it because the the people you follow in this are clearly of the view and they, they issue some impressive facts, that nuclear power ironically, some would say, appears to be the safest and cleanest way to combat climate change and also create energy. Do you think that's the truth?
0: Well, you know, I am a filmmaker from, you know, RD County Loud. And, you know, I'm not a physicist, I'm not a scientist, but certainly... One of the most conflating kind of, I suppose, like, uh, facts that I was being told that really got me hooked into this was the death toll from Chernobyl. And originally, when I, you know, growing up, um, I uh, always thought of Chernobyl had killed, like, way over a million people. And kind of what I was finding out as I started to uh, understand a little bit more about nuclear power was that that's not what the scientists were effectively saying. You did have some people who were generally activists, doctors, that kind of thing, who were coming out with these bigger numbers. But, in fact, the actual studies and rigorous kind of um, data sets that were kind of what we would call the science were saying the complete opposite. Mm. And I found that very hard. It was something like under like maybe 100 or, you know, definitely under 200 people have been killed by chernobyl and that to me was just astonishing like why why are people saying one thing and you know how are these facts completely conflated? so that was kind of the beginning of me trying to work out what the hell is going on here and, and that uh, was the
2: bit i was mostly troubled by when it came to stuff like fukushima and chernobyl sure. and i mean yeah. that figure that's presented in your film that it wasn't into the thousands, as is suggested. Like, is I, I guess yeah. I'm asking, I'm not suggesting you're putting nonsense on screen, but is that true as far <laughs> as you understand it?
0: That is as true as you can get regarding what the, you know, when you have uh, thousands of, of papers being written by, from universities all over the world, um, this is one of the most studied, rigorously studied um uh, areas regarding uh, the effects of radiation um, on the body. We have one of the b- bigger and probably most uh, reliable sources of information regarding the the um, effect of radiation is from the Nagasaki and Hiroshima bombings mm-hmm. uh, where we have intergenerational uh, studies done on what, on what happens. And so... This was kind of my first step. Who is saying this? Who are the people who are writing about this? Who are the scientists? Geraldine Thomas from Imperial College London mm-hmm. was one of the first people. I kind of kind of kept coming up. She was the the she's the person who you heard in the movie saying that, and she was actually the defender of the Chernobyl tissue bank. Um, so, yeah, I went to, to her effectively and said, "What what's going on here?" and uh, I have to say, she was way more convincing uh, than anyone else who I
2: spoke to yeah. regarding it. Well, it, it, the movie certainly is giving me cause to look again at nuclear. I would, I would suggest, and 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 I I want to go and you know study some of these statistics myself and and find out what I can see. What's very interesting about nuclear in the documentary, as it's presented, is. And I don't want to go down a scientific rabbit hole because I barely understand it. But (laughs) many of the people you talk to make the case for energy density. And they're saying that solar power and things like that just have way less energy density than nuclear power has. Mm. Uh, So just tell us a little bit about that.
0: Yeah, and that actually is something that people keep saying to me that they can't get over this, that they never really knew about. It. And that is something I just didn't know about either. There's a little bit in the movie, I think, where one of the engineers is showing a little golf ball-sized mm. um, bit of metal and says that that's the amount of energy that you would use your, in your entire life to power everything, your holidays, your food, and it's all contained in that little, and that's the amount of waste that you would get from it, too. So a kind of a good real-life example in Ireland might be for Carnsore Point. That's kind of where the nuclear kind of question began in Ireland. Mm. And you had, a, um, you had a site that was protested against. They were going to build a 650-megawatt station there that would probably have powered maybe 150,000 homes. they yeah. were in and around that. And today there is a uh, wind farm there, that's, I think, 11.9 or 12 megawatts, mm-hmm. which would, when the wind blows, power possibly around 7,000 houses. Uh, so you kind of get an idea there of just the land, like uh, the, the same 200 acres of land for nuclear would power a huge ma- amount of homes, whereas with wind, obviously. So um, instead of building that nuclear power plant, we built Money Point, mm-hmm. uh, which is a coal-fired power plant uh, in Clare. And from that day until this, we've been shooting radioactive fly ash into the air and into the uh, communities of County Clare um, since then. So it's kind of one of these very interesting conversations that seems to have just not been talked about in a kind of grown up way. And so I'm hoping that the film can kind of spark some interest and kind of like you say, get people kind of Googling a little bit more Mm. and trying to find out more about, about the subject matter.
2: Yeah, well, that, that's certainly uh, the effect it had on me and, you know, the, the idea we have of nuclear is things like Chernobyl and Hiroshima and Ooh. nuclear bombs and all that kind of stuff. So there, there may be a second movie to come on this, Frankie. I should also say it's uh, very well put together and lots of archival footage and, and it really works as a documentary in that regard. It is getting a release next Friday, not this Friday, but next Friday, which
0: is what date, Frankie? It's the 17th of February. The 17th of February. Be, yeah, I think it's going to be in Dublin, Cork, Galway, yeah. Belfast, all the major cities anyway, the for, for starters. So. Excellent.
2: Well, it yeah. is called Atomic Hope. Its director was talking to me, Frankie Frenton. Frankie, thanks very much. Cheers,
0: John. Thanks a so lot.
2: That was the director, Frankie Fenton, there talking to me about Atomic Hope, the new documentary, which is in cinemas next Friday, the 17th of February. It's actually called Atomic Hope Inside the Pro-Nuclear Movement to give it its full title. Uh, It's controversial. I didn't have as much time to get into it with Frankie, but I mean, there are certainly questions uh, in the documentary being raised about the efficacy of nuclear power. And some of the scientists, they do make contentious statements, it has to be said. And and around things like Chernobyl and, and and Fukushima, you know, there are certain views of the facts and statistics. I mean, I, I think an antidote to a lot of what some of the scientists are saying are the long-term effects of some of these nuclear disasters. Uh, and they don't really get into that. And, and though you can argue about the death toll and how much was related to the actual Nuclear accident. I don't think you can argue with some of the long term figures of how many deaths happened in those areas where there was a nuclear disaster over the years. So if there's a criticism of the documentary, it does appear a little one sided. Now, in Frankie's defence, it probably appears one sided because he is following these pro nuclear guys around who are very lone voices in the dark. It has to be said, but you know what? It it got me googling and 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 still has me googling, and it's a it's There's a lot in it, so it's worth a watch. Atomic Hope in cinemas next Friday. Up next, the one and only Pat Short on his favourite movie. Now you're welcome back to Screen Time, News Talks, TV and Movie Show. It's that stage of the week where we talk to someone well known about their favourite movie, a man who needs no introduction, is actor and comedian, podcaster, the one and only Pat Short. Hello, sir. Uh, good to talk to you, John. How are you? Very well. Now listen, when I rang you, you said, I don't need 30 minutes to come back and tell you what my favourite movie is. It was there. We could have done the interview last week, so tell our listeners what it is and why.
1: Yeah, well, it's it's Whitney and I, Um. but Richard E. Grant uh, was uh, in the movie, people would know him, and he's absolutely incredible. And I thought it was one of the most amazing performances of any actor. I think also, I, I think it, there's a if you're an actor as well, there's another dimension to it. You don't need to, uh, but it's almost like it's the it's the spinal tap of acting kind of in some ways you know what i mean it's got all yeah. those, those those cliches and and uh and you know it's two it's people that don't know the movie it's about two struggling actors trying to just survive it's just so funny it's it's hilariously funny
2: and Richard E. Grant is uh, a struggling actor, and they go off to the countryside, him and his pal, yeah, uh, to stay in his uncle's house, Uncle Monty's, yeah.
1: yeah. <laughs> and he's just—he's that people would recognise that actor. And again, I should look. I should have all the names in front of me, John. It's here, Richard Griffiths. Don't worry, Richard Griffiths. He plays yeah. Monty. People would know him from Harry Potter films, and stuff yeah, yeah. Like and he's and he, he's he's passed since, uh, but he's just. His performance in that is ridiculously funny as well. He plays this camp. uh, Well, he's gay, obviously, and he's he's, uh, Richard E. Grant's uncle. And he goes to him to get the keys for the house down the country. But he falls madly in love with uh, Richard E. Grant's uh, friend, the other actor. um, And he follows them down the country. (laughs) It's just, uh, he's dialogue. He's dialogue. It's constantly just epic throughout the whole film. He
2: it's his it's crown his achievement. Interestingly, on this slot, a lot of comedians have chosen this over the years as their favorite movie. Uh, so I guess it must speak to something of the the job and comedian as well as the job and actor, maybe.
1: Possibly, yeah. No, I wasn't aware of that. Funny enough, um, but it possibly does. But I think I don't know. Look, like I remember when we were in college. Uh, there was a drinking game we used to have uh, that you'd try and have a drink for every drink they had on screen <laughs> and I don't think anyone ever got past the halfway through the movie and they just collapsed. you know I wouldn't recommend anyone try it or do it, but um, I could see I could see a, you know well it's very, very funny um it's just great it's like in the rock and' roll guys love it as well for the yeah. the roadie character. Uh, who was the Campbell Wild Carrot I mean he uh, Richard E. Grant they've no money they're they're drinking constantly through the whole film and he just uh, he I think he kind of rises up the the roadie guy because he's rolling a giant and he's kind of saying whatever you have in that won't do anything to me, you will be grand. I'm gonna f you up with this and all and, and of course he, he wants it, that's why he's teasing you, Saint German. we'll do, do nothing, so he makes them the Camberwell carrot of a joint and mm. they absolutely get destroyed on it. And I think that I think that character uh influenced Wayne's world. Uh, yeah. and there was a I I think Wayne's World too, they had him in the movie as well, I think, as a roadie. Um, okay yeah I think he played a cameo role because uh, he's another I think every character in the film is iconic you know they've got yeah. those iconic statuses you know?
2: and you know Richard e. Grant is hilarious in it but that closing scene where he's in the zoo and he does a bit of Hamlet like he shows his yeah. chops as a brilliant actor as well well, I mean,
1: I mean, he's yeah. You're absolutely right, and he and he's he plays the role of a kind of a thespian uh, mm. in, in an acting sense. The other character, not so much. Um, but he does. He does. There's another great scene in it, actually, that, from a Limerick perspective, um, <laughs> uh, which was really good. Do you remember the scene where they go into the pub and yeah. the IRA guy in the Jacks? Yeah. Well, his name is O'Malley from Limerick. That okay. actor, and uh, right. he would have been a. Uh, he would have been a first cousin of Desi O'Malley, the politician. Oh, okay, right. He's from that O'Malley family as such. And wow. he, went, he went to London for years, and that was one of the most memorable roles he did he did a lot of theatre over there but that everyone in Limerick was very proud of him for that role
2: (laughs) okay I didn't know that I uh, interviewed Richard E. Grant for Star Wars of all things a couple of years ago and it was on one of these junkets and you know you're given six or eight minutes or whatever it was and it was also with uh uh not Donald Gleason. Yeah, it was with Donald Gleason as well. Yeah. There. And I could see, I asked about uh with Nail and I, because, you know, Richard yeah. B. Grant, I was never going to meet him again. And I could see the press people all around me just being very unhappy. But he his eyes lit up. He still adores that film oh, with yeah. all his heart, you
1: know? Yeah, I, I I was lucky enough to work with Richard on on John Borman's last film, Queen and Country. Yeah, and we spent a month together in in uh, Romania, and with such a he's an absolute laugh I mean, uh, the funny thing about Richard, and I hope he doesn't mind me saying this, but he doesn't drink. He's not, yeah, he's not, he's not a drinker at all. That's was was you know he's in the film. It's all about drinking his character, <laughs> <laughs> and he plays and when you see when you think of the drunken character he plays. It's incredible for a guy that doesn't drink and never yeah. been drunk in his life. And and it's one of the hardest roles to play as a drunk because a lot of time people overplay it constantly, you know. And, yeah. and it's, it's just to get the subtlety in it. Um, but he used to be such fun. Every night we'd have dinner after filming every evening with John and the team. And it was something that John Board would love doing. And, and Richard was just the stories and uh, you'd be just Bent over laughing, yeah. Uh, every every night, when him. was just a wonderful uh, character. But yes, you're sorry. Going back to the acting, it, he played this kind of a thespian, uh, rattling off Hamlet. So he just he's an incredible actor. That's, yeah, you can see why he was nominated for the Oscar. Uh, yeah, absolutely.
2: So you out name dropped me there when I say interview. He said, "Well, when I spent a month with him on the continent, you know." we were were working we were working (laughs) (laughs) listen i wanted to ask you briefly about your own acting career it's a matter of public record on this show that we've mentioned garage as one of the best irish movies of all time and during lockdown i interviewed marco hallran and i said to him how when i saw it it seemed kind of incongruous to us that this guy from Dunbelievables was going to be in this very powerful you know tightly shot, emotionally deep movie. And he kind of not chastised me, but but said, you know, well, there's a lot more. And even back then, there was a lot more to Pat Short than people realised. I'm wondering, like, at the time of Garage, was it, you know, there was maybe a sense of he's, he's, he's a fish out of water until people saw the movie. But you had been in theatre and doing all sorts of acting jobs. Like, it wasn't that big of a leap for you. It might have seemed that way to the rest of us, though.
1: Yeah, no, I, I mean, I think... I think, yeah, I had done, uh, I had done work with Martin McDonough prior to that. Um, yeah. And Lonesome West withdrew a theatre company in the west of Ireland. And we toured with that. Um, I, I'd done Father Ted, which I know people look on as comedy, but it's it's still television acting. And it's yeah. the, the disciplines of that as well. And I'd done a few films uh, prior to that too. But I also, I, I think... Uh, in particular with Garage, I'd worked on, and people might find this strange, but I'd worked on a couple of commercials with Lenny Abramson. And I was fascinated with his discipline. And yeah. he was doing comedy and he was the only director I'd, I'd worked with on. I'd done a couple of commercials. Uh, prior to that, that, I saw timing every scene, timing every comic moment. Mm. And and comedy is all about timing. And Lenny really, really approached it that way. And I remember when I asked Lenny, why did he ask me to do Garage? And he said, because of the physicality of the character Josie. And mm. he had seen me on stage as and he'd seen me in, in Druid, and it's, he'd worked with me in the commercials. And he realized what a physical actor I was and and that I was ideal for that role. And that was interesting as well. Um, Yeah. So he had every confidence that I was going to do what he he wanted to do, even sometimes more than me.
2: (laughs) Wow. And I wonder about that movie because, you know, people should rewatch it because at the heart of it, yeah, you know, it's a tragic story. Like yeah. w- when you got the script, you must have, the hairs in the back of your neck must have stood up.
1: Yeah. I like, I, I had been approached by Mark and Lenny before he'd even finished writing the script. And, uh, we discussed the character. But when I got the script then, it, it, like, I think, and I hope Mark doesn't mind me saying this, it was loosely based on, on a, 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 a true story that happened mm-hmm. where he came from, you know? yeah, And, uh, and uh, that's where it was influenced from it may not have been exactly i don't know the details of of that individual story but yeah. he had he had mentioned that to me the tragedy of it and mm. how uh, this individual was uh, he kind of had every he had the news on everything and he had all the everything about everybody and all mm. and the minute People started talking about him. He just felt apart and fell apart. Yeah. Whole world fell apart, and it was tragic to see. And the, the poor old devil. You know, he was. Yeah, you know, uh, you really really felt. So you yeah. When I when I got the script, yes, it it was uh, beautifully written by Marco Allen. Mm. I didn't put one line into it. it everything, okay. was there, everything was there. Um, so it was, it was just so lovely to play it, you
2: know. Yeah, well, you did put plenty into it. Uh, m- oh, maybe yeah. not lines, but yeah, you yeah, yeah, certainly yeah. acted your pants off. <laughs> yeah. Tell me this, you mentioned Martin McDonough, who's, uh, you know, the toast of everywhere at the moment. I Sorry to keep name dropping, but I did interview him for the band She's and he, you know, he was talking about Brendan and Colin and he was talking about Christopher Walken and just all these names keep coming up of just people yeah. he wants to work with again, that he just seems to find the gang that he likes and they all understand the same. And I mean, you've done a couple of things with him and you were in Banshees over in Ackle, I guess. So so do you find that the Martin McDonough experience, it, it, it seems to be quite unique and people seem very loyal to him?
1: Yeah, I mean, look, he's been very good to me in Down Through the years in, in uh, with theatre, and mm. uh, he has recommended me for when I went to West End and Broadway. In that, yeah, uh, the, the the production company came looking for me, and I think Martin had pointed them, me in their direction. So, he, likewise, he's very loyal to people that work with him, and that's something Carrie Carrie Condon said to me. When I met her recently in Los Angeles, and she was saying, "Oh, it's great, Pat, because he's really given the nod to a lot of people that did theatre with him. If you look at the cast uh, in 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 the film that." like apart from the four lead, uh, everybody has kind of worked at Martin's theatre down through the years and it's kind of him giving a nod back, which is lovely. Mm. Um, He is an incredible director. There's no question about it. He's always Martin's way and what he wants he gets (laughs) (laughs) I remember I remember (laughs) I remember doing a a, uh, got to the dress rehearsal in London for Cripple of English Man and after we were all delighted we'd worked our tits off and we thought we did a great job and he got up and says i have only wanting to say to y'all everything I've written is better than everything you've spoken (laughs) (laughs) And that was a kick in the balls. <laughs> I kind of went, "What? I totally delivered the lines properly." And I found out after something I shouldn't be saying this really on the radio. He often says it to a lot of cast to give him a kick in the arse and get him to go back in.
2: Wow! And,
1: and work harder. This is only a week out from opening. Wow! Um,
2: sounds so like he should be a football manager or something. Yeah, it was, back, yeah. it
1: was brilliant because we were all standing around in shock afterwards. Going, "I didn't think it was that bad," <laughs> and it wasn't that bad, but it could have been a bit better. And just as we didn't relax and, and get too comfortable yeah uh, and it did what was required of it it got us all uh, back up on our feet again you know, so it was what it worked it worked
2: <laughs> yeah it certainly did listen just en route to letting you go i you know the more of this i do when i talk to actors and comedians and people like that they all seem to not enjoy school uh and <laughs> they were waiting to get out of it and it just popped into my head there when i was talking to you were you
1: one of those people Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I Couldn't wait to get out. I hated school. Uh, yeah. Now I often think I and I hope my kids don't mind me saying this, but they're really all they're all dyslexic. Um, okay. I never got tested myself, but I think I found out since, like, like the reason I bring that up is most actors are dyslexic. Something like eighty percent of actors are dyslexic, which is okay. It's is shocking to hear. Wow. I mean, so you have to be very careful when you're in a rehearsal room with actresses about reading lines. Or I remember seeing an actress years ago on a film set many, many, many years ago, go apeshit when she got given last minute rewrites uh, okay. to be done that day in a scene. And she, like she's a beautiful old woman and it, she just like everyone was in shock. Mm. <laughs> but what we found out after is another actress said, hey, did you not realize she doesn't read? She learned okay. all her lines from a tape. This actress wow. is passed now, so I, I don't okay. see it. But and I won't mention any names. But that the person learned their lines when a friend would read the lines on a tape, and she'd learn them from that. And she was a really good actress, amazing. So she was kind of embarrassed. anyway, lots of people are dyslexic and stuff, and as a result, I, I you know I find it difficult in school. Yeah. Certainly in my generation, I had absolutely no concentration whatsoever. Yet I studied music, play music better than most at the time, and mm-hmm. had no problem. I'm slow at reading scripts but I work at it you know what I mean yeah there might be something in that you know
2: yeah that's fascinating 80% listen I should you mentioned your kids uh, you're a brave man you're touring with your daughter and (laughs) and it appears to be going gangbusters Uh, there's still a few more dates of the current tour you're going into April aren't you
1: yeah we're going into April the end of April and all dates on Patshort.com, short.com is where all the information is about the tour. But we're having a ball, Miss Eva Faye and she's a great actress as well. She's done a couple of short films recently. Um so yes. hopefully lamp something down the road. That's the nature of the world we live in. Indeed. Um, but it's yeah, we're having a blast. And I don't know when this, this show is going out, but if it's if it's uh, before the twenty seventh of February I just noticed, and this is not a plug for me, but Whitnail and I is on the uh, UCH Film Club on the 27th of February, if anyone in the Liberty area wants to get to see it.
2: <laughs> wow, look at that. He's not even plugging his own tour. He's plugging screenings of no, Whitnail
1: and I. <laughs> yeah, it's just a great film. And it's a great chance to get to see it. Yeah, <laughs> a big absolutely. Screen.
2: Well, look, this is going out in the next few days, but uh, if people want to see Faye and Pat Short doing their stuff, patshort.com. His favourite movie is undoubtedly Whitnail and I.
1: Pat Short, thanks a million. Thanks, John. Good to talk to you. One, want cake and tea. Didn't you hear? She said she'd closed. What do you want in here? Cake. What's it got to do with you? I happen to be the proprietor. Now, would you leave? Ah, I'm glad you're the proprietor. I was going to have to have a word with you anyway. We're working on a film up here. Location, see. We might want to do a film in here. You're drunk. Just bring out the type. Cake and fine wine. If you don't leave, we'll call the police. Balls.
2: Richard E. Grant from With Nail and I. I'm laughing already. That film. That film. Oh, man. Oh, woman. What an amazing film. And what a great man Pat Short is. And uh, it was nice to talk to him about his acting career because he has done a lot of superb acting. and Chief among those acting roles that are superb is is undoubtedly to my mind garage uh because it is a tour de force he's absolutely brilliant and i was delightful to talk to pat short he told me a story off air when we were finished and i it was off air for a reason so i won't get into it but it's one of those stories i spoke to him on tuesday and i haven't stopped laughing about it since it, it it's popped into my head i'm laughing about it now i'll tell you about it sometime over a pint but It was a great story. Probably not fit for air, but anyway, often the best stories are are heard off air. That's it for this week. My thanks to Anne-Marie Kane, who helped out on the show this week, as she does every week. Also to uh, Jack McDonald, an intern working with us at the moment, who also helped out. And next week on the show, Lily James and Jemima Khan, yes, will be talking to me about the new rom-com, What's Love?, got to do with it. It's a rom-com with a difference. More of that next week. And thank you for listening. And to the 3,000 of you who tuned in over the last three months, the 3,000 new listeners that I have, thank you very much, whoever you are. And listen, this show is available as a podcast uh, every Friday at 5pm, as well as being on the radio. So you can subscribe to it, you know, and tell your friends to subscribe to it. Spread the word. So that is it for this week. Thank you for listening and have a safe week ahead.